In this episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast, I'm joined by Dr. James Rory Tucker to discuss undersea medicine and health and fitness considerations for scuba diving, free diving, and pretty much anything that relates to the water. Dr. Tucker is an assistant professor at Temple University at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine. He specializes in family medicine and sports medicine. He's board certified in both of those. He's interested in the research and medical assessment of scuba diving, undersea medicine, and musculoskeletal injuries. For more on Dr. Tucker, you can check out the link below to his profile on Temple University's website. Before we get to this episode, here's a quick word from one of our sponsors. Dr. Tucker, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here again. So for people who aren't familiar with you and your work and all of the amazing things that you've studied in the past, would you mind kind of sharing a little bit about yourself with us? Sure, sure. So I'm uh, currently an employed physician and board certified in primary care sports medicine, as well as uh, family medicine. I have a background from the military, um, Access Naval Academy, thereafter served in the United States Marine Corps, thereafter kind of changed careers and then ultimately pursued medicine. That's awesome. So you've kind of seen all sides of medicine from general practice, family medicine, to sports, to uh, Naval Academy. That's uh, very unique experiences. I'm curious, what was medicine like in the Naval Academy compared to what you do now in general practice, family medicine, and sports medicine? Sure. So, uh... In my time with the service, I was not in medicine, so I was a, a recipient of military medicine, a patient. Mm. Um, I didn't. I always had an interest growing up as a young boy through scouts and first aid and whatnot. Through the military, I was actually going the pilot route, and then it just so happened when I was in flight school, eight of my twenty classmates were physicians, so I spent a lot of time just speaking with them about what was their life like and became more and more interested. So when my time with the service ended and I had a knee injury, so I got more and more interested. <laughs> I thought, okay, well, let me try medicine and see what that's all about. And now here you are now, and you mentioned before that you've come to learn a lot about and specialize in undersea and underwater medicine and the needs of athletes who go underwater. So before we start talking about that, when it comes to diving, uh, it's amazing how diving has grown popular uh, as a sport over the past few years. I think over 4 million people in the U.S. now are engaging in some form of diving, whether it be for recreational purposes or commercial purposes or that sort of thing. Uh, when it comes to divers, what do you typically see uh, what's your typical client or patient look like when it comes to diving? Are they free divers? Are they recreational scuba divers? Are they more on the commercial side of things? And how far down is far down when it comes to diving? Uh, can you kind of just paint that picture for us? Sure, sure. You, you asked a lot of great, great uh, overview questions. So a lot to <laughs> the best I can here. So um, you're exactly right. Diving is growing worldwide. There are estimated to be about 500,000 new certifications every year. And, uh, a little bit confusing of a number because it doesn't necessarily mean that those are all people who are brand new to diving. They could be getting an additional certification or a specialty certification in one particular area, right? Now, I estimated over three to four million divers kind of diving at any one time throughout the globe. As far as uh, what, uh, you know, diving entails as far as kind of the athlete goes. That's a that's a great question in and of itself, and I'm sure we could spend you know quite a good deal of time talking about. In my field, uh, where I spend the majority of my time in primary care sports medicine, an athlete is a, as I'm sure you're aware, perhaps your listeners as well. An athlete is a difficult term to define. Uh, people tend to think of the athlete as the person, you know, in competitive sports that you see on television. Uh, 
an athlete is so much more. It can range anywhere from the master's level athlete who is 70 plus years old and still competing in track and field events or running marathons all the way down to that, you know, sub um, you know, elementary school student competing in kind of, or at least learning to play a sport for their first time and everything in between. And that's one of the joys of kind of my primary care side, getting to see that in the other. As far as uh, the type of diver that I would see in clinic, a uh, little, little segue uh, here for just a very brief moment. There is a field of medicine, uh, hyperbaric medicine. Hyperbaric medicine is a, a field that looks at increasing pressure to treat ailments. Now, that tends to be an additional year of training, and that is a year of training I have not completed, so I do not uh, intend to pass myself off as a board-certified hyperbaric physician. However, I have taken a variety of courses offered through the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, as well as the Undersea and Hyperbaric Medical Society, that is um, through which I've acquired additional knowledge and training for the treatment of divers specifically. Another piece that uh, you asked was recreational divers or free divers or even commercial divers. So there, there again, lots of unpacked, and there are different fields of diving. Uh, the commercial divers are the underwater workers that we may think of or people may think of as you know, the oil pipeline workers. They're also dry divers. So if you're having a tunnel that is, that is being built while well, pressure can be used to help stabilize that environment and because it's pressure they are considered divers they're just not wet they, they are dry uh, they fall being that that is their job they're employed they are working they fall under uh, osha re requirements which has a whole host of medical requirements for them the free diving side these are divers who dive without any equipment for the most part. There are a whole subset of varieties of classes of free diving, but for now we'll just limit it to people doing it under their own power. They take a breath on the surface and see how far down they can go or swim around. You know, they even have static competitions just face down floating in the water for how long they can hold their breath. But really the, the bulk of what um, divers, you know, think about are the so-called recreational divers, the people who have a job, they do that job, and then for fun, be it on the weekend near their home or traveling to exotic locale, locations around the world, they scrap, they uh, strap tanks to their back, go underwater and be able to breathe. The recreational diving market uh, tends to do certifications for anywhere from the surface down to 130 feet of depth. So we tend to think of deep as kind of below 100 feet, but in the free diving world, people are going to several hundred, you know, down to 300 you know, feet. In the commercial diving world, they can go down much, much deeper, six, seven, eight, nine hundred thousand you know, feet of depth. That's absolutely crazy to me to just try and picture like what it would be like to be a quarter mile underwater. It, it's amazing. And you even mentioned the free divers who are getting down to six, 700 feet in some cases, uh, extreme, extreme cases, while holding their breath. And, and then obviously, hopefully they resurface. Um, if not, then we have another issue. Uh, but it's just amazing to think that that is something that the human body is capable of. And sure, in some cases, they have like an, an oxygen tank and all that sort of thing. But as you mentioned, it's amazing that we can uh, adapt to the pressure changes internally so quickly. Um, I've never been a thousand feet underwater before, but I would imagine it feels quite different than what you feel, you know, standing beachside at the, uh, you know, at the surf there. Um, so as far as the pressure changes go, how do, what effect does that have on the human body first off? Um, I, I'll, I'll even say too, I'm thinking about like just the recreational side of things. If I wanted to go diving somewhere, like say Florida, I would have to jump on an airplane and fly there. So would there be any kind of impact from the pressure change of flying 30,000 feet 
and then landing and then going underwater uh, as well. Great, great questions. As far as kind of what does it feel like to expose us to pressure, we have to think back to our own just uh, biochemical composition. So we're made up of a variety of tissues, but the majority of these tissues are involved, are solid or liquid. So our blood that's pumping around our body. Being a liquid, we can think of it as essentially incompressible. So whether we were at the surface on Mount Everest or at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, the blood would be, the, be a relative constant in volume. Where we begin to experience the changes are our air spaces. And our body maintains a variety of those, most notably our lungs. So as far as how it feels to dive to a great depth, for the most part, our body would not feel that change where we could have experienced that with the increased density of the gas, making it more challenging uh, for us to breathe. Uh, the gas we're breathing right now in air is made up of 78, approximately 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and 1% other being a variety of gases, predominantly carbon dioxide. And that would be then compressed and we are going to breathe that at the same pressure of whatever depth we are, called ambient pressure. And that's where the whole beginning of diagonalities sets in. Interesting. I hadn't even thought about that before. I'm um, just going back to the basic understanding of states of matter. Um, but that's an interesting biochemical consideration. Uh, and maybe that's more on me for choosing a program that doesn't give a biochemistry course um, but it's interesting how some of these things when they're explained can be so simple to understand in nature but it's like one of those wow I've never thought about it like that kind of moments if that makes sense absolutely and I think that's one of the uh, one of the absolute beauties in diving I grew up in Southern California where I had the opportunity to be exposed to the ocean uh, pretty much at the time of my choosing. And it was probably inevitable that I was drawn to the water. And by being able to experience scuba diving and see the underwater realm, that was a part that just got into my heart and I've never, ever been able to let it go in order to want to. For sure. And I'm sure there's a lot of health benefits to being able to go underwater like that in some capacity. Um, I would say the free diving probably would stand out to me more for the health benefit side, but in general, um, getting underwater into those types of situations is probably a good thing from a cardiovascular standpoint, good thing from a overall health standpoint, and good thing from an endurance standpoint, I would think, um, without doing a whole lot of research myself on um any kind of diving in general, um, I would think that with the diving, especially the free diving, you would see a little bit of maybe spleen compression as you start to get underneath the water and get all of that pressure built up. And I would imagine that would have something similar to like a natural blood doping effect. If I'm thinking about this correctly, um, like you would see a increased level of red blood cells in response to being in a state of hypo oxygen for lack of a better way to put that so that, that, that's great and, and a lot of people actually may as they start to think about it come to similar conclusions however there's there's something that i just want to correct right there okay the, the opposite is actually quite true interesting so, really there, so through a uh, concept of kind of high school physics related laws, we have Boyle's law, which simply states that in a pressure volume relationship, the, the product is constant. So as pressure increases, volume decreases. So for example, if we were to take a one gallon container of air at the surface, that pressure would double at 33 feet of seawater. So as we took that container down to 33 feet of seawater, it would compress to the point that it was now only a half gallon in volume. What we do when we're scuba diving, so that, that is an effect that free divers deal with. 
in scuba diving where we're carrying a tank on our gas and being able to breathe it at the ambient surrounding pressure, we take a deep breath at the surface of our lungs. And as we go down, we are exhaling and inhaling ambient pressure. So using a, as a poor example, our lungs of that one gallon container at 33 feet, our lungs would still be one gallon size. This, this becomes very important as we do the opposite. We are now going to decrease our pressure and move back towards the surface. If we are not exhaling that excess gas, our one gallon volume lung is now a two, volume, a two gallon at the surface and we risk having created a over expansion injury. Interesting. So that goes into the whole concept of slowly descending and slowly ascending when you dive and not just going from like, you know, super deep to surface real quick. Um, I feel like that was in like, I, I'm terrible at remembering movie titles, but I feel like there was a movie that I saw a while back where they had a submarine and they were underwater and they shot to the surface real quick. And the one guy was freaking out over it because he's like, this is so bad. This is so bad or something like that. Um, but again, they never under, they, they never explained why, but now I know that's an interesting point. Um, going along with the other physical demands that diving places on the body. Um, you mentioned before that commercial divers have to adhere to OSHA guidelines, whether they be, dry divers or wet divers. So what kind of physical requirements would a diver have to meet or physical abilities would they have to display in order to dive commercially or if they're injured, return to diving or that sort of thing? Great question. So there, there are medical guidelines for exactly that. You, as you can imagine, although here at the surface, if we pump up a balloon, we now have a very light, you know, equal in weight to the air that supplies. But as that goes down in depth, it becomes compressed. We don't want our tanks being compressed. So they are made of metal, be it aluminum or steel, most commonly there are some exotic materials. And the commercial divers often are even supplied by air from the surface. So this is that idea of um, the hard hat helmet with the air tube coming to them. So they are being supplied with compressed gas from the surface. That equipment can be quite heavy. So they do need to maintain adequate cardiovascular fitness, similar as other athletes would. The cardiovascular demands of diving, as you mentioned, for a recreational diver, or I should say that the demands so much as the benefit, really is quite similar to swimming. Uh, water being 800 times denser than air provides a lot of resistance as we're moving through it. So we'll get, we'll have an increased um, cardiac requirement um, as you are diving. However, in the recreational world, the entire goal is to enjoy it, have a wonderful time. So not to try to swim as fast as you can moving around from site to site, but rather Gotcha, gotcha. And I would imagine, in addition to being a physically demanding sport and activity, it's probably pretty mentally demanding at times as well, too. If you're someone who doesn't do well in the dark or doesn't do well with not being able to see, like, you know, very far around you or being afraid of, you know, something bumps into you and it was like, what was that? What was that? Was that a fish? Was that a shark? Um, I would imagine there's probably a pretty big mental demand to it as well. There are, there are a large number of individuals who initially can struggle with some of the required skills. Most common skill with which people struggle initially is a mask flooding drill. So as part of the certification process, as you can imagine, if something goes wrong underwater, for reasons we already mentioned, it's not okay to immediately bolt to the surface to address that problem. It needs to be addressed underwater. So as you're diving with a mask on, if that mask gets knocked loose or has some water in it, you're taught how to clear that mask and clear the water out of it. When you have that water against your face on the mask, some people can feel, or at least just being underwater, they can feel claustrophobic. Mm. So if individuals do suffer from 
um, a variety of mental health ailments, it's important for those to be very stable and controlled. And of course, I would always recommend they speak with their you know, treatment provider to say, hey, how would, would this be an acceptable thing to do? And the recreational scuba industry has come together with a recreational scuba training council medical recommendation form that uh, students are asked for whatever course they're setting out to uh, embark upon to fill it out and they will be asked about a variety of ailments. And if they answer yes to those questions, they're often encouraged to seek medical medical authorization prior to continuing. Right, that makes sense. I'm sure it probably varies a little bit too based on where you're diving. If you're in like super dirty water and you're not gonna see five feet in front of you, you're probably more likely to experience some of those things than if you're in the Caribbean where it's, you know, clear and blue and you look down and you can see, you know, 500 feet away and that sort of thing as well. Um, the experience that the individual would have would be vastly different. However, the risks are really pressure dependent. So whether the visibility is wonderful or poor, the risk to the individual from a pressure standpoint is Outside of the pressure side of, I'll, I'll say medicine, but any kind of injuries and different ailments that can result from diving, we've talked about the pressure. Is there anything else that divers should watch for or be on the lookout for when it comes to stuff that can injure them or potentially go wrong when they're underwater um, in the way of you know, whether it be themselves or someone else or uh, sea life or certain kind of like uh, vegetation or anything of that sort? Sure. So um, one of the stories I, I love having grown up in Southern California and being a huge fan of marine life, actually, as an undergraduate, oceanography was my, my major choice. So I've <laughs> always enjoyed studying the underwater realm. People um, have developed a fear of sharks and Peter Benchley himself um, the author of the book Jaws when it was made into a movie and he saw the subsequent slaughtering of sharks and felt very bad about this and dedicated the remainder of his life to being a cannibal conservationist. So people under in the underwater realm will have a fear of sharks. Now we are aliens in the underwater environment. We do not belong there, and so we are very unusual to all the creatures that are there. We also carry a tank, and we are exhaling our bubbles, which is very loud and a very foreign noise. So much like a cat, if you go to your friend's house and there's a nice, calm cat that's always happened there, and you start making all sorts of noise, that cat wants nothing to do with you and will run away and hide under the bed. Same thing in the aquatic realm. The animals hear us coming long before we see them. And for the most part, they want nothing to do with us. There are a variety of uh, flora that can be problematic. Uh, coral is a living organism with a biofilm on it. Uh, so simply touching the coral disturbs it and can put it at risk of infection uh, and damage it. Fire coral it has an organism on it which reacts very badly to our body. It gets its name because it will feel like that part of your body that you just touched is on fire. There are other animals in there um, that very similar to uh, dogs um, in that they are of no risk or harm to you, but when provoked, now can pose a risk to you. Uh, lionfish, you know, spines on them more eels and very sharp teeth as do barracuda, but these animals are not going to come out of nowhere and attack them. The greatest risk really to ourselves diving is, as you mentioned, ourselves. It's easy to think of decompression sickness and gas and pressure related problems, but the number one killer of divers is cardiac disease. Similar to the athletes running up and down on a field or basketball court, where if they were to drop, you know, drop dead or at least uh, fall unconscious, we would worry immediately about their heart. Divers who have medical problems over the age of you know, 35 need to first consider their heart. 
Right. That makes a lot of sense. And cardiovascular disease has been rampant in the United States for quite some time and only getting worse, unfortunately. Fortunately, we do have a couple podcasts about the topic. One recorded last year with Dr. Stefan Hussey, who really dives into what we're not treating and what we're missing in the way of cardiovascular disease. So we've given similar advice to help treat cardiovascular disease for uh, years and years, decades at this point, and yet our results have been worse outcomes, worse outcomes. So he kind of looks at the situation, brings in a lot of new modern evidence, and gives a new perspective on what we should be doing that we're not doing to help reverse the trend. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, highly recommend you go back and do that. On the topic of cardiovascular disease and free and uh, diving, though, if you, um, I'm thinking more in the way of free diving right now, but anytime you spend a prolonged period of time underwater, I believe there's a reflex, and I could be wrong about this, called the MDR mammalian dive reflex, and it's a, it, it kind of goes away as we age but you can reactivate it as you spend more time underwater and it helps to put your body into a state of, uh, I'll compare it to like parasympathetic tone, basically slower heart rate, more relaxed kind of state. overall. Would that be something that could um, help to treat and uh, reverse some of the changes that we've seen with cardiovascular disease? Or is there a cardioprotective benefit to regular diving in that sense? That's a great question. So the mammalian diving reflex, as you mentioned, is a increase in vagal tone or uh, parasympathetic activation. Uh, the idea has you know, been played as, oh, just put your face in a bowl of water. However, it is not that simple. It depends a deal more from immersion. As you mentioned also, it attenuates with age, more prevalent in children. And you're, you're, you, hit it, you hit the nail on the head, um, the present day activation, the cardiac um, rate will slow, respiratory rate will slow. It's a very calming uh, effect. Interesting. So it's a way to kind of like give yourself a natural high from just being underwater. Um, I'm curious, do you think any of that mechanism and what goes into that occurring has to do with water temperature, right? So we see these guys like Wim Hof doing the crazy ice baths and all that sort of thing. And again, I've never been a thousand feet under the water, but I would imagine it's a lot colder down there than what you get at the surface, you know, on the beach side. So the uh, diving reflex itself is not temperature dependent. However, you, you did mention the uh, temperature association of depth. So there is something called a thermocline. Uh, this, this you can think of as a stratification of layers related to temperature. Water can stratify for a variety of reasons. It can stratify by um, salinity or the degree of salt. It can uh, Commonly, the thermocline divers can very, very acutely feel it when they cross from one level to another. And this can vary both seasonally, it can vary daily, depending on the size and the body of water you're in. Our oceans are essentially uh, the same temperature around the globe, well, around 1,000 feet. And that's well beyond the scope of recreational diving. So whether an individual is diving off of the Florida Keys or in um, Southern California or the Arctic, they're going to experience tremendously different temperatures. The impact of temperature on us really uh, is going to impact our comfort as well as our potential risk of decompression sickness. People will use a variety of exposure protection suits. Some people in very warm climates may choose just to simply dive in their bathing suit. Others can dive in a wetsuit. It can be a varying thickness. It's the air bubbles in the neoprene that are providing the insulation for them. And then ultimately, they can choose to dive in a dry suit, which is um, a variety of materials used, but essentially a rubber suit with seals at the wrist 
and uh, boots in the bottom and a seal at the neck that traps air in them and then you wear essentially insulating layers to keep you warm in that air surrounded environment. That would be the one I need. I get cold way too easily. Um, I've gone uh, in the water, fresh water, um, early on in like, you know, April, May, and I've needed like a full wetsuit before and I'm only in for minutes because I can't, I can't stand the, you know, 40, 45 degree water temperature. And I'd imagine that that's probably close to what you get in some of these depths. Um, the the but, other thing is, you know, I mentioned already the increased density of water and that plays a big factor in how we experience heat transfer. Mm-hmm. For example, if you are on a dive boat off of, let's say, uh, Key West, and the air temperature is a nice, incredibly comfortable, let's say, 84 degrees Fahrenheit, and the water is an incredibly comfortable, let's say, 80 degrees Fahrenheit, you will, you could last all day in your bathing suit on that surface of that dive boat and be very comfortable from a temperature standpoint. However, in the water, that water temperature will lift you know, we'll lick uh, heat away from us 20 to 25 times faster than in that air environment. So you may go diving in your bathing suit, but if you're doing an hour dive, you're probably going to be cold at the end of that. And if not then, then on a subsequent dive. So you may wear a wetsuit, even though the water is 80 degrees. That's interesting. So in a way, regardless of the water temperature, you could develop hypothermic type symptoms if you're not adequately prepared or you spend too much time in the water. That's exactly correct. And it's a cumulative effect. So if you're doing multiple dives over that same day, you are cumulatively experiencing greater and greater heat loss. And I would imagine that's how a lot of people come to meet you because they do something like that. Um, And I would imagine they probably review all those things pretty in depth for the recreational courses. Um, But, you know, again, me just being me, that was something I would have never thought of. And I spend my summers on the lake. I'm in the water quite frequently. And I never really thought about that overall duration of time I'm in the water and what effect that has on my overall body temperature. And again, again, we have cold water up here in the north because it, it never warms up. It's just kind of the nature of it. Um, but I've, I've never really thought about it like that before. That's interesting. Well, I, I think uh, scuba diving, you know, considering that of the sport, is uh, potentially suffering from the same thing that's plaguing all athletics these days. And that is, and this is my opinion um, as a scuba instructor and myself, who has a obvious uh, strong inclination towards science, a watering down of the academic portion of sports. So in, in years gone by, uh, diving certification process required, you know, a, a heavy calculations of their dive tables and how long can they stay at whatever depth and performance of a variety um, emergency procedures underwater. And as things have gone on, new courses have been created or whatnot, and it's been made easier and easier to become certified with the goal of, of enabling more and more people to get involved. And I, I am hesitant to express a lot of um, pleasure about this because I think when things go wrong, the more you understand the topic, the easier it is to get yourself or someone else out of that situation. I would definitely agree with you there. Um, And that applies to scuba diving. But as you mentioned, a lot of other different things that we're seeing in modern lifestyle in general, right? Um, So before we got on uh, the podcast, I was sharing with you that I recently did a outreach event for a local high school sports team. And as part of that outreach event, we were talking to, you know, the coaches, the players, and a lot of the players were told by someone that they had problems. They knew that, oh, you know, this was tight, this didn't feel right, but they were never told what to do about it. And again, it goes back to that level of understanding where we've watered something as complex as the human body down to a point where we want people to understand it, which is great. 
but they need to understand it and then be able to apply it in the sense that they can give actionable advice about it instead of just recognize that there's a problem. Uh, and that, that in itself is a conversation that could, do, could deserve an entire episode um, because the human body is a very complex place, right? And it doesn't come with an owner's manual. We all don't you know, get to understand how everything works and what perfect feels like all the time. It's a little bit different and unique for each individual person. But we can't simple. We 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 want to simplify things so that people understand them. And I think that there's mastery in the ability to take something complex and simplify it. But you have to be able to do so without uh, missing the true point and true mechanism behind it. Right. So we we know how and why a lot of things in the body work, and oftentimes we don't explain that to people. We just say, well. Here, here, do this because it works. And we missed that why point. And that why point doesn't take long to explain, but having someone understand how it works and why it works can make all the difference for them long-term and down the line. And there are a variety of scuba diving certifying agencies and all of them need a minimum base of requirements. Some of them take things a little farther than others and some dive shops may take things farther than others, but as we mentioned, kind of watering down can run into problems. And we see that as well. You know, there's a push to get more and more people involved. So the scuba diving agencies are lowering the age requirement to become a certified diver. And we're seeing that outside of just diving, you know, in baseball and basketball and soccer and a lot of the youth sports is they want more people involved and they want to get them involved earlier. It's getting younger and younger. As someone who's maybe played some of those sports, you watch that and you say, ah, yeah, bouncing a ball, that's not learning how to play basketball. That's what well, you're, you know, at some point, I just worry that these various agencies, be they diving or elsewhere, are putting the wrong motivating factor on their decisions. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's, that's classic. Um... American uh, life at its best, right? We, uh, if you want to explain anything that happens here, just follow the trail of money, for lack of a better way to put it. Going along with this topic of just having a deep and in-depth understanding of whatever health-related topic we're talking about, earlier we brought up the MDR, mammalian dive reflex. And I've been thinking about that a little bit as we've been going along here. I would imagine that that's something that's probably pretty present and active in marine animals that are mammals, because there's quite a few of them, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, it's been a while since I took biology, admittingly. Um, and a lot of the diet that you look at with marine mammals tends to be fats and proteins, right? They eat like fish or different things in the ocean. And unfortunately, you don't have things like donuts and bagels in the ocean for them to consume. So or unfortunately. <laughs> so could there be some kind of potential benefit when it comes to diving in using a kind of ketogenic or low carbohydrate dietary approach or eating approach, in your opinion? So that's a, that's a great question, particularly as uh, our, our current uh, nutritional climate in athletics has looked at a lot of that. In my, my opinion, uh, not specifically would relate, uh, as it would relate to mammalian diving reflex or even diving specifically, but rather ancillary benefits. So a, um, I, I, I'm personally not, not a large fan of a ketogenic diet, probably because it makes me think of the biochemistry. And if it's ketogenic, then it's generating ketones, which may or may not be uh, true depending on the degree of carbohydrate consumption. So I prefer to call it a low or reduced carbohydrate diet. And in so doing, there are a lot of benefits for people with diabetes as a classic example. And if, if it gives someone better control over their glucose and their sugar levels, that has benefits to them diving. Uh, for years, di diabetics were not permitted to dive. 
because of the skeletal, what if they have a low blood sugar incident while in the water and they are unable to tend to that, they could become a liability to themselves or to others. And it's been found that there are a number of dietetic diets and they do very, very well. So medically oriented organization called DAN or the Divers Alert Network out of Durham, North Carolina has actually published and has had a symposia on this and has published uh, recommended guidelines for diabetics to enable them to diet in a safe manner. Right, right. That makes me think back to um, just Sammy Inkinen and everything that he's doing with Verta Health because they use medicinal um, restricted carbohydrate diets to help individuals with type 2 diabetes control their blood sugar and potentially reverse the disease long term. Um, and it's interesting too how the carbohydrate restriction approach varies so much based on sporting activity. Um, so we did an episode recently recently with uh, Dr. Philip Prince uh, from Grove City who's researched low carbohydrate diets in endurance athletes. And he's found that going to a low carb approach does not really move performance markers back at all because a lot of people theorized for a long time that endurance athletes need carbs. They need, you know, granola bars and energy gels and powders and all these different things in order to perform at a high level. And yet they've proved that's not the case. But again, if you're engaging in an endurance type activity and you're switching to a nutrition approach that supports cardiovascular health and blood glucose regulation, then maybe there is some benefit to it. And maybe there was some untold, unseen um, metabolic health factors that were going on from slamming all of the quick carbohydrate sources constantly over and over and over again. Again, that's another topic for another time. <laughs> but, you know, we've, we've got 10 new podcast uh, episodes uh, planned after this episode, after this one here. Um, last thing I've really got to ask you here on the topic of, you know, all these different things we've talked about, it makes me think of just in general, this concept that's kind of slang called biohacking, the process of using different hacks for lack of a better way to put it, to optimize your health and your human performance in any kind of activity. And one of the common things that comes to mind with that is breathing and breath work Obviously, breathing and breathing patterns, as we've discussed, are, are uh, very important for divers. You don't want to breathe too quick. You don't want to breathe too slow. You want a nice regular rhythm while ascending and descending. Is there any breathing technique um, that divers use that might have benefit to people outside of the world of diving? So I think about, like again, just the basic box breathing technique. Although it was invented for the military and used for military purposes to help people uh, in the military relax and be able to fall asleep anywhere, there's now a lot of people using it in daily life for their own benefit. Is there anything like that in the world of diving that comes to mind for you? Sure, sure. So the, the easiest uh, way to answer this is with the recreational scuba or those who are uh, carrying self-contained breathing apparatus. And because of what we've covered already about the risk of expansion-related injuries with ascent back to the surface, the golden rule of recreational scuba diving is to never hold your breath, sometimes uh, reported as you know, always breathe or exhale continuously. So for, from a scuba standpoint, breathing is really just something that whatever the individual is comfortable doing. Where it gets really interesting, though, is on the free diving side of the house. So there was the United States Navy had done some work looking at the duration of time people could hold their breath and found that there is a subset of individuals who are just natural carbon dioxide retainers. So that uh, carbon dioxide being the main triggering mechanism in our body telling us when to breathe, if our oxygen level gets low, that is a secondary mechanism. So if someone is a natural CO2 retainer, their body is used to higher levels of carbon dioxide and therefore will be able to hold their breath for longer. Some research has looked at can you train 
a person to be able to hold their breath for longer. And the role of free diving is grown. The answer is an abundant yes. It's amazing the time gains an individual can learn through technique alone to increase their breath holding time ability. You, you mentioned the carbon dioxide piece there and how as we hold our breath, we see increased levels of carbon dioxide in the body. From a systemic standpoint, is there ever a time where that could be beneficial? Um, like I, I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm trying to remember where I came across this technique. Uh, oh, um, it was the guy who founded Quest Nutrition. His name's escaping me at this uh, moment, but I think he wrote a book or he was in a podcast or something like that. And he talked about how, although you said about not holding your breath, he said that at times he'll hold his breath, obviously on land and not breathe to uh, kind of naturally increase his carbon dioxide levels in his body. And he said when he does that, he feels a rush of energy afterwards and he credited it to if I have high carbon dioxide levels in my body, then I must be offloading oxygen to my peripheral tissues. Um, it was something along those lines. It's been a while since I've came across it. But when you mentioned the carbon dioxide and the breath holding, that's kind of where my brain went. Have you ever heard or seen anything similar to that in the past? Or? So no, I'm not, not familiar with the book you mentioned there. Um, from a scuba diving scenario, there are there, there are individuals who have um, held a belief called skip breathing, and this is where we carry a finite amount of gas underwater in our tanks. So if, if someone were trying to make it last longer, what they could do is rather than breathe on their usual uh, metronome type cadence, if they would breathe, hold, breathe, hold, the concept was that they would burn through their gas in a longer period of time and they would be able to enjoy the underwater realm for longer. Physiologically, however, this actually does not work. Matter of fact, it even backfires because the gas buildup actually will ultimately increase the breathing rate and that individual attempting to skip breathe will burn through their gas at an accelerated rate. So the other, the other piece being the danger with ascent of those overexpansion related injuries in the lung. So from a scuba standpoint, I cannot think of a point where it would be beneficial to hold your breath with the attempt to increase carbon dioxide. Right, right. That would be something more for like the lifestyle approach he was talking about, like on land, but it, it still, it never sat right with me and I might've misquoted or misremembered it. I'll have to um, look it up after this and see if I can find the initial reference to uh, what I was referring to there. Um, you, you just get these things sometimes that um, kind of, they, they never sat right with me. And from the first time I saw it and I just connected it here and that, that's where my brain went. So um, with that, Dr. Tucker, is there anything else you want to share with those listening uh, about scuba diving, free diving, and all the amazing things that we've talked about as it relates to underwater medicine? Sure. So a lot of what we've talked about, kind of, uh, we, we covered some of the potential dangers of scuba diving. I think we've also did a good job of talking about some potential cardiovascular benefits where it is a it is, it is, in my mind, the ultimate low-impact cardiovascular activity. Some people who have knee injuries or ankle injuries, hip problems, we try to encourage them to be physically active as sports professionals. And we can say, hey, don't run, but ride a bike or swim. Well, if you would like to battle or try out the world's least impact activity because your entire body is being moving up please feel free to give scuba diving a try it is a wonderful activity from the moment i tried it i've never been sorry and i always want to encourage as many people to do it as possible there are a variety of dive shops around as i mentioned earlier the agency is immaterial the instructor 
is really what matters. Find someone who is going to teach at the level you're interested in and with whom you have a good rapport. So hopefully this broadcast hasn't scared anyone off. <laughs> Actually done done what I've always tried to do as a both a, a physician interested in dive medicine as well as a scuba instructor, tried to get more people in the underwater realm. Right. And underwater things are limitless right like say you're someone who enjoys hunting or bow hunting or whatever that way you can do spear hunting underwater you can combine the scuba diving with hunting um so it there's so many different ways to get involved in the life underwater i'll say absolutely so initial certification is how to be safe and how to perform the activity and be it from there as you mentioned there's you know certification courses in wreck diving or diving uh, different gases for different reasons, um, night diving, navigation, uh, shore diving, boat diving, deep diving, and the list is limited only by someone's imagination. For sure. Dr. Tucker, if people want to find out more about you, where can they do that? On social media or LinkedIn or um, Temple? Sure, sure. So uh, probably the... Um, Best way would you know if you just simply do a Google search, um, you should be able to locate a profile of one of the places of you know where I have worked. I'm also happy to uh, give my email address if people wanted to contact me directly. Awesome, Dr. Tucker, we really appreciate your time and all your amazing insight and knowledge as it relates to underwater and undersea medicine. Um, you know, as we were talking before, I didn't fully understand what this uh, whole concept even was just before we started recording it. And it's really amazing and fascinating to me, this whole world of physiology as the body goes underwater. Yes, thank you. It's really, it's really been a pleasure. If there are any medical providers who are listening and they wanted to get more involved, as I mentioned, they, you know, ultimately the, the gold standard is the Hyperbaric Medicine Fellowship, however, there are other courses that are out there. Please feel free to you know, search for those or if you have questions specifically about those, I'm always happy to answer. As I mentioned, anything I can do to get people interested in the underwater realm, I'm all in. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you like this episode, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and share this episode with a friend who you think would enjoy hearing it. Additionally, if you want to help support this podcast and keep future episodes going, please check out our links below where you can support us directly or through engaging in any of our affiliate marketing links. Last, please make sure you check us out on social media at Braun Body and leave a five-star review, especially if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify.